Hello, my name is Christopher Greenwood. I'm going to talk today about the sources of international law. Where does international law come from? How are new rules of international law made? Now, if we were asking where does the law of any particular country come from, it would be a very easy line of inquiry. We'd start, usually, with the constitution of the state. Then we'd look at its code, if it's a country that has a civil or criminal code, at the acts of its parliament, and the decisions of its courts. In international law, you can't do that. International law has no parliament. It has no constitution, although, as we'll see, the Charter of the United Nations perhaps comes closer to that than any other instrument. It has a court, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, but that court has only a restricted jurisdiction, and its decisions are not binding in future cases. So the result is that international law is made in a largely decentralized way, quite different from anything you find within any particular country. It's made, in effect, largely by what the, the 192 states of the international community do in their dealings with one another, in their dealings with individuals, and in the relations they have with international organizations, like the United Nations. And it's very important to keep in mind that international law is made by what states do, not by what professors like me say. Now, a starting point, and it's only a starting point, for finding out where international law comes from is Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice. That tells the International Court what it has to apply in deciding the disputes that are put before it. So it's as good a description of the sources of international law as we're going to find anywhere. And it identifies five sources. Treaties between states, customary international law, the general principles of law recognized by civilized nations, and the last two are subsidiary means only, judicial decisions and the writings of the most highly qualified publicists. I remember when I was an, a student asking my professor, well, who are the most highly qualified publicists? The answer I got, whoever is setting and marking your exam is the most highly qualified publicist, and don't ever forget it. That's quite useful advice. Now, although that list in Article 38 is often thought today to be inadequate in various ways, it's as good a starting point as we get, and so I'm going to go through the five sources which it lists, and then look and see if there's anything that they've left out. Now, although the list in Article 38 begins with treaties, it's perhaps more convenient for us if we begin with customary international law. There are two reasons for that. It's the oldest of the sources, and it's the only one which generates rules that bind all states on a more or less automatic basis. Treaties, as we'll see, work quite differently. Now, customary international law is not a written source. Although it's often been written down after the event, it's essentially unwritten law, unwritten rules, which evolve over a period of time. And customary international law requires two elements. First of all, there has to be a widespread and consistent state practice. And secondly, that practice has to be supported by what is called opinio juris. Now, opinio juris is generally translated as meaning a belief in legal obligation. So it's not enough that states do something as a matter of course. 
They have to do it because they believe they have a legal obligation to behave in this way. As the International Court of Justice put it some 40 years ago in the North Sea Continental Shelf cases, not only must the acts concerned be a settled practice, but they must also be such or be carried out in such a way as to be evidence of a belief that this practice is rendered obligatory by the existence of a rule requiring it. The states concerned must feel that they are conforming to what amounts to a legal obligation. And if you don't have both of those elements, you cannot have a rule of customary international law. That's quite effectively illustrated by one of the earliest cases decided not by the present International Court, but its predecessor, the Permanent Court of International Justice, which sat in The Hague in the years between the First and Second World Wars. The case is called the SS Lotus, and it's worth just spending a few minutes seeing what it decides. The Lotus was a French merchant ship which collided in the Mediterranean with a Turkish ship, the Boz Kurt. Probably, though we'll never really know, because the officer of the watch on the French ship wasn't doing his job properly. Several people on the Turkish ship died in that collision. The French vessel, the Lotus, then put into harbour in Turkey, and the lieutenant who was the officer of the watch was arrested and charged with manslaughter. France took this case to the permanent court, arguing that Turkey was not entitled to try a French national for a crime which, if it had happened at all, had taken place on a French ship. France argued that there is a customary international law rule that the flag state has exclusive jurisdiction over crimes committed by its nationals on board one of its ships on the high seas. Now France succeeded in showing that states other than the flag state hardly ever prosecuted a foreign national for a crime committed at sea. They were able to show, in other words, a widespread and consistent state practice that states did not exercise jurisdiction over crimes committed by foreign nationals on foreign flagged ships. But what France was unable to show, the majority of the court held, and it was a close decision, what France was unable to show was that there was any belief in legal obligation. In other words, they couldn't show that states did not prosecute because they considered they were not allowed to prosecute. And for that reason, France lost that case by a very narrow margin. So the Lotus, although it's to some extent been overtaken on the specific facts, is still an important reminder that you cannot have a rule of customary international law unless you can show opinio juris as well as practice. But of course, it also works the other way round. You can't have a rule of international law based solely on opinions there's got to be practice as well. That was discussed by the current International Court in the advisory opinion that it gave in 1996 on whether it could ever be lawful to use nuclear weapons. The court was taken to a long series of statements, in, mostly in the form of General Assembly resolutions, in which states had made clear that the use of nuclear weapons would be unlawful. That, the court said, is important evidence of opinio juris. 
but by itself it is not widespread and consistent state practice. And it's contradicted by other practice of states. The fact that a number of states possess nuclear weapons, that they and their allies had made it clear they would be willing to use them in certain circumstances. Taken together, what the court found there is that there wasn't sufficient state practice to generate a rule of customary international law prohibiting the use of nuclear weapons. So you have to have both elements to have a rule of custom. The trouble is, neither of those elements is easy to understand when you actually look at them a bit closer. So far as practice is concerned, it's important to remember that practice is the whole of the practice of the state, not, as some people think, what the foreign ministry of that state does. At least it's not just what the foreign ministry does. It includes what the state's parliament does, the legislation that it passes, and the decisions of its courts. So, for example, suppose one was looking at whether there was a rule of customary international law about the control of fishing by a coastal state. The practice of the coastal states would include the statements made by the government asserting control over the waters around the state, legislation passed by the parliament of that state, for example, the Fisheries Act, legislating for fishing in the waters out to 200 miles from the coast, and decisions of the courts in prosecutions of foreign fishermen who were arrested for breaking the terms of the Fisheries Act. The practice has to be seen as a whole, in its totality. Now, what then happens if there is a variation between what states say on the one hand and what they do on the other? We've already seen that in the nuclear weapons case, the court considered that that difference was fatal. But it won't always work quite like that. Let's take, for example, the rule of customary international law which prohibits the use of torture. Very clearly established, lots of courts have said over time that there is a complete prohibition on the use of torture and that there's a customary international law rule to that effect. And we could all, I think, be very grateful for that. But if one opens the reports each year from Amnesty International, for example, we see that Amnesty accuses lots of states of actually practicing torture, whatever they might say, in public. Now, where does that leave us? Is there, in fact, widespread and consistent state practice? I think that there is, for this reason, no state claims a right to carry out torture. They either say that what they are doing isn't torture, or they deny that they're doing it at all. Now, in those circumstances, what you actually have is a practice that looks like this. A large number of states condemn torture and don't practice it. Another group of states, perhaps, condemn it in public, but practice it while denying it. And a third group condemn torture, but seek to show that what they're doing falls within an exception to the rule against torture, perhaps because it doesn't constitute torture itself. Now, in those circumstances, what you actually have is a consistent international condemnation of the practice of torture, which is sufficient to give rise to a rule of customary international law. The International Court, in a case not about torture, but about the use of force, a case between Nicaragua and the United States, 
made this rather interesting comment. In order, it said, to deduce the existence of customary rules, the court deems it sufficient that the conduct of states should in general be consistent with such a rule and that instances of state conduct inconsistent with such a rule should generally have been treated as breaches of that rule, not as indications of the recognition of a new rule. And that is the case with torture. If it's discovered that a state is engaging in torture, everybody condemns that state for violating the rule of international law. They don't suggest that the law is changing in any way. Then turn to Opinio Juris. Now, I read to you earlier the definition of opinio juris by the International Court in the North Sea case, that opinio juris is a belief in legal obligation. I have to say that I don't think that definition is entirely satisfactory. First of all, it's difficult to think of states, artificial constructions, as having beliefs at all. Only a person can have a belief. Secondly, a number of rules of international law are not in fact rules that impose obligations at all. They're permissive rules, rules which say that states may do this rather than that they must not do that. Let's take, for example, the customary international law rule that evolved starting in the 1940s, that each state, each coastal state, had sovereignty over the continental shelf, the seabed, adjacent to its territory. Now, the state practice that gave rise to that rule is generally thought to have started with a proclamation by the US President, President Truman, in 1946. But nobody would think that when President Truman said the US has sovereignty over its continental shelf, that he or anyone else in the United States believed that the US was obliged to claim that sovereignty. What they were doing was asserting a right to it. Moreover, if one makes too much of the belief of a state, then in effect the law can never change because the only practice that would change it would be practice that would not be supported by a belief in existing legal obligation at all. So to my mind, a better definition of opinio juris would look like this. Practice would have to be supported by either an assertion of a legal right or an acknowledgement of a legal obligation depending on the character of the rule. And that way one doesn't have to start inquiring into this artificial notion of what a state believes or doesn't believe. So only if you have a sufficient body of state practice supported by opinio juris in the way in which I've just suggested will a rule of customary international law evolve. Once it evolves, it binds all states. There's only one exception to that. If a state objects to an evolving rule of custom and does so from before that rule becomes law, in other words, from before it has sufficient state practice to give it legal status, then the state in question is what is called a persistent objector and it in effect contracts out of the rule of custom. But that is difficult to establish and perhaps can only happen in practice in a relatively small number of cases. Now let's turn from customary international law to treaties. Treaties, by the way, come with a wide variety of different names. 
They're sometimes called conventions, agreements, exchanges of notes, protocols. It doesn't matter what the name is. A treaty is an agreement between two or more states, or between a state and an international organization. It is binding on the parties to that treaty. Incidentally, please try not to make the mistake that is so often made in, in the press of talking about whether a state has signed a treaty or not. Usually it's not the act of signing a treaty that makes you a party to it. It's ratifying that signature afterwards. Moreover, a state that wasn't around when the treaty was signed, or didn't take part in the conference that signed it, cannot sign it later. It has to accede to the treaty. So what matters is whether a state is a party to the treaty, not whether it's a signatory. That'll be dealt with in more detail in a later lecture on the law of treaties. Now, strictly speaking, a treaty is not a source of law at all. It's rather a source of obligations under the law. Why is a treaty binding? It's binding because there's a rule of customary international law, pacta sunt servanda, promises must be kept, which says that agreements, treaties, are legally binding. But that is a rather theological distinction that doesn't perhaps have any real significance in practice. In practice, what matters is that treaties are sources of obligation for all the states that choose to become parties to them. But they do not bind states that are not parties. In that sense, they're very different from customary law. And secondly, it's up to each state whether it chooses to become a party or not. There is no legal requirement for states to become parties to treaties. So if they choose to stand aside, for example, from a treaty on climate change, that is a political choice. It's not in any sense a breach of international law. Now, having said that, many treaties are also important as authoritative statements of customary international law. Now, that can happen in a number of different ways. The most obvious way is if a treaty sets out to codify the existing unwritten law. And a lot of the major treaties in international law, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, for example, were always intended to be codificatory. Strictly speaking, I suppose, what binds states is not the treaty in those circumstances, unless they're parties to it. It's the underlying rule of custom. The treaty is evidence of the customary law. But that's really a distinction without a difference. Once you write down what was previously unwritten, in practice you change the rule. Because from that day onwards, everyone who is discussing that rule will do so in the context of interpreting the words used in the treaty provision. A good example is the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties of 1969, the result of a very detailed study by the International Law Commission and a large international conference but fewer than half the states in the world are parties to it. The importance of the Vienna Convention is that it's generally accepted today to be an authoritative statement, a codification of the customary international law on matters like treaty interpretation. And every time there is a dispute about the interpretation of a treaty, reference is made to it, whether it's technically applicable to the states concerned or not. Even where a treaty provision is not intended to be codificatory, 
it can become a statement of customary law if, after a period of time, practice has come to crystallise around it. The International Court of Justice put it this way in the North Sea case, the case about the um, continental shelf boundaries. I should perhaps just say a little bit about that. A Geneva Convention on the Continental Shelf had laid down rules about how the boundaries between adjacent states were to be extrapolated out into the seabed. Now, if you picture in your mind the coast of Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands, it forms almost a right angle with Germany in the middle. If you extrapolate boundary lines on the basis of equidistance, so that each point on the line is the same distance from the nearest point on the coastline of the Netherlands and Germany on one side, and Germany and Denmark on the other. The result is that Germany is boxed into a fairly small triangle, and the rest of the North Sea continental shelf is divided between the Netherlands and Denmark. For that reason, Germany never ratified the Convention on the Continental Shelf. So the question when the case came before the International Court was whether the provision in Article 6 of that Convention, which at the time, later on people thought differently, but at the time was thought to be a requirement to apply the equidistance rule, stated a rule of customary international law. The Court said that it didn't, but in the course of dealing with this it said Yes, it could become a rule of custom if there was sufficient state practice accepting it. The court made this remark. Although the passage of only a short period of time is not necessarily or of itself a bar to the formation of a new rule of customary international law on the basis of what was originally a purely conventional rule, in other words, a rule that wasn't codificatory at the time it was drafted, an indispensable requirement, the court said, would be that within the period in question, short though it might be, state practice, including that of states whose interests are specially affected, should have been both extensive and virtually uniform in the sense of the provision invoked. In other words, if states had all acted as though Article 6 was binding upon them, then the rule in Article 6 would have become part of custom, but there was no evidence that they had done that, and that was why Germany was successful on that point when the Netherlands and Denmark um, lost that issue in the case. And the reality is this, if you have a conference at which most of the 192 states in the world are represented, and that conference by a large majority or by consensus agrees on a particular treaty provision, that is in itself an important piece of state practice and it will put a considerable impetus behind that rule moving into customary international law. And a large number of treaties, for example on terrorism, the laws of armed conflict, treaty making, have entered into the world of customary international law on that basis. Now, treaties and custom are probably the two most important sources of international law, but let me say a little bit about the other three that are listed in Article 38. General principles of law recognised by civilised nations appears as the third source. I wouldn't attach too much significance to the reference to civilised nations today. The assumption is that all nations are civilised. 
What international law has tended to do in this area is it has sometimes borrowed concepts that are common to most of the main national legal systems. For example, in the Barcelona Traction Company case in 1970, the court had to deal with the status of a company, Barcelona Traction, which ran most of its business in Spain, in Barcelona, was incorporated in Canada, but owned almost entirely by Belgian shareholders. The court said that under international law, a company is a separate legal person from the shareholders that set it up and own it. And in doing that, the court referred to general principles in all the main national legal systems under which companies have separate legal personality. So there you have an example of taking a rule that is common to all the main legal systems and drawing from it a general principle that is part of international law. What international law doesn't do, and it's very important to keep this in mind, is it won't take the entire content of a particular national rule and simply transfer it. Sometimes you'll find lawyers whose experience is mainly in national rather than international law working on the basis that international law must necessarily include the whole of, for example, the English rule on estoppel or the American rule on exclusion of evidence that's been improperly obtained. It doesn't work like that. You'd have to show that the rule in question, even if it appears under different names in different countries, is essentially a principle common to all of the main states. If you can do that, then you can bring it into international law, or you may be able to do so through the medium of general principles. Then what about judicial decisions? It's perhaps a bit surprising that decisions of courts appear as a subsidiary means for the determination of rules of law. Why subsidiary? Well, the answer is that unlike common law countries, mainly the English-speaking world, where judicial decisions are not only binding in the case in question, they're also binding on future courts deciding a similar case. There's no doctrine of what we call binding precedent in international law. In fact, the statute of the International Court of Justice says that expressly. In Article 59 of the statute, it makes clear that the decision of the court is binding only on the parties to the particular case, and only in the context of that case. So hence, judicial decision, in terms of its effect on the law more generally, is subsidiary in the sense that it doesn't directly create obligations for anybody. But of course, it can be enormously important. The International Court of Justice generally tries to be consistent in its decisions, as do other international tribunals. And so you find that they will refer back to their own cases as authority, as English lawyers would say, for the creation of rules of custom, for the identification of rules of custom, I should say. Now, one of the curious features of Article 38 is that it doesn't distinguish between decisions of national courts and decisions of international tribunals. Does that mean that a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States or the Conseil d'État in France or the House of Lords in England is to be treated in the same way as a decision of the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. No, it doesn't. As a general proposition, decisions of international tribunals are more persuasive as evidence of the content of international law 
than decisions of national courts. But there's this very important uh, qualification to note. The decision of a national court is not only, in some areas at least, persuasive evidence of the, uh, the content of rules of international law, especially if it's a court with a very strong reputation. It is also part of the practice of the state concerned. Now, if you look at some areas of international law, for example, the rule that states accord immunity to foreign states, you, the starting point being that you cannot normally sue a foreign state in the courts of your own country. You can't sue, for example, um, Japan in the courts of the United Kingdom. Now, that rule is one which is based largely on practice that takes the form of decisions of national courts and acts of national parliaments. So if you were looking to see what is the content of the customary international law rule on state immunity, you would have to look at the decisions of national courts. I was involved in quite an interesting example of that in a case in the English courts a few years ago, where the House of Lords, the highest court of appeal in England, and undertook a detailed examination of decisions of courts from several other jurisdictions in order to try and establish what was the customary law on a particular point about state immunity. Then there's the writings of publicists, jurists, academics. Now, they don't directly create law at all, but they may be very important evidence of it. The one thing I would be wary of doing is there's sometimes a, a practice of saying, well, we can show that this rule exists, because it appears in such and such a textbook. That's a very dangerous thing to do. You should always be able to find more than just an isolated passage in a book or article in order to establish that a rule of customary international law exists on a particular subject. So is the list of sources complete? Now, it's often said that there are other sources of international law which Article 38 neglects. And perhaps the most important of those are said to be the acts of the United Nations organs. Now, there's no doubt about it that the United Nations organs, particularly the General Assembly and the Security Council, play an enormously important role in creating and shaping international law. But as we'll see in a minute, you can probably fit that within the framework of Article 38 more readily than some of Article 38's critics might suggest. Let's look at those two organs. The General Assembly passes each year a number of resolutions which are specifically designed to state the rules of international law on a particular subject. Now, it's true, most of the other resolutions don't do that, so one shouldn't generalise about General Assembly resolutions as a whole. But some of them purport to lay down rules of law. Now, what's the basis for that? The General Assembly has no power to take binding decisions. Its resolutions are not binding on anyone, except in relation to internal matters of United Nations administration. So clearly, a General Assembly resolution cannot be the equivalent of legislation. Its importance, I think, lies in this, that if an, a resolution is adopted unanimously or by consensus or even by a very large majority so that it reflects widespread and consistent agreement and, and it's important to keep this in mind, and 
if those states considered that that resolution was indeed stating existing international law rather than what they thought the law ought to be in the future, then it would probably go a long way to meeting the criteria for customary international law of widespread and consistent state practice coupled with opinio juris. The critical test, of course, is whether what states do outside the context of the United Nations contradicts the text of that resolution. And there you might end up with the situation that you had in the nuclear weapons case, where although there were quite large majorities in favour of the proposition that nuclear weapons were unlawful, that was contradicted by the practice of states, many of whom, I may say, had not supported those resolutions. State, uh, stating that they were prepared to use nuclear weapons or to rely on the nuclear weapons of others. So with the General Assembly resolution, the critical questions, I think, are these. They're the questions you'd apply to any other attempt to create customary international law. Is there sufficiently widespread and consistent state practice? And is it supported by opinio juris? If the answer is yes, then the resolution can have a very important effect in shaping customary international law. The Assembly's resolutions can be important in another way too. Many of them in recent years have had attached to them the text of a draft treaty which has been negotiated under United Nations auspices and which the resolution recommends states to adopt. The Convention Against Torture adopted in the 1980s is the result of an initiative like that and several of the anti-terrorism treaties have come about in the same way. So the General Assembly may play an important part in the treaty-making process. Of course, it's the treaty itself which creates the binding obligations. But one shouldn't underestimate the significance of the General Assembly in moving that treaty-making process along. The Security Council's a rather different matter. The Council can take binding decisions if it acts under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, and if the language of the resolution is mandatory, for example, the Council decides that states shall do the following, then that resolution imposes a legal obligation on all states, members of the United Nations. Article 25 of the Charter provides that all members of the UN agree to carry out the decisions of the Security Council. Moreover, that obligation to carry out the decisions of the Council will prevail because of Article 103 of the UN Charter over obligations arising under any other treaty. So it's a very important source. But is it a source of law? Well, not really. It's rather a source of obligation on a specific matter. For example, the specific imposition of sanctions against a particular state. The Security Council doesn't set out to create new rules of general law. Good illustration of that is that when it set up the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the resolutions on that and the Secretary General's reports on which they're based were clear that the Tribunal should apply law that was already in force. The Council wasn't setting out to create new rules of law. There's an interesting decision of the Appeals Chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal in a case called Tadic in 1995, which deals with precisely this point. But one shouldn't underestimate the significance of Security Council decisions in laying down obligations for states. 
not particularly important before 1990, but since 1990, the Council has been very active in that field. One last question we ought to look at. Is there a hierarchy of rules of international law, of sources of law? Now this attracts enormous controversy, a huge amount written about it. I have to say I think much of that confuses people rather than helps them. There's nothing really of substance in it. Only in one sense is there genuinely a hierarchy in international law. And that is that rules which have the status of jus cogens, peremptory rules from which no derogation is allowed, those rules prevail over any others. Now, normally, if states wish to do so, they can agree to vary, as between themselves, the rules of customary international law by treaty. But rules of jus cogens may not be waived or varied. A treaty, for example, by which two states agreed to carry out genocide or to perpetrate acts of torture would be invalid because it contravened a rule of jus cogens. That's clearly provided, for example, in Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. But very few rules have the status of jus cogens, and the criteria for achieving that status are very strict. For a rule to have the status of jus cogens, it must be one which has achieved near-universal acceptance, so a higher standard than required for ordinary custom, and with a higher level of opinio juris. It's not enough that it is considered to state a legal obligation. It must be accepted as something which states a higher level of legal obligation, an obligation from which no derogation is permitted in any circumstances. Now, if a rule has the status of jus cogens, it meets those criteria, then it will prevail over other rules. But as I say, very few rules have so far been accepted as having that status. The prohibition on aggression, the prohibition on genocide, the prohibitions of torture and slavery are the principal examples. Moreover, it's worth looking very carefully at whether there really is a conflict between a jus cogens rule and another rule of international law. For example, the prohibition on torture is an absolute rule, a rule of jus cogens. So any rule which permitted torture would contravene it. But one of the questions which has arisen is, does the rule of international law that gives immunity from the jurisdiction of the courts of one state to the officials of another state contravene the prohibition on torture? The International Court of Justice and the English House of Lords have both rejected that, saying that the conflict is there's no conflict between a rule on immunity from jurisdiction from one court and the prohibition of torture. The prohibition of torture doesn't say where a particular case is to be tried or by whom a particular case is to be heard. So look very skeptically, I would suggest at suggestions that a particular rule, especially a long-established one, now contravenes a norm of jus cogens and has therefore become invalid. It can happen, but it isn't going to happen very often. Now, otherwise, there's probably no hierarchy in international law at all. There are two matters one ought to consider briefly. 
The first is that it's sometimes said treaties have a higher legal status than custom. That isn't strictly true. A treaty prevails over customary international law, but only as between the parties to the treaty. The treaty cannot alter the rights and obligations of other states. So whereas two states could agree by treaty that as between themselves, they will set aside a rule of customary law, so long as it's not just cogens. They can't set aside their obligations under that customary law rule to a third country that isn't a party to the treaty. That's a fairly obvious proposition if we think about it. Secondly, I mentioned Article 103 of the United Nations Charter. Article 103 provides that obligations under the Charter prevail over obligations under any other treaty. It's generally accepted today that they also prevail over obligations under customary international law. But the Charter occupies a special position. Every state in the world is now a party to it. And the obligations which it creates are of a very special character. So although it does in involve a limited element of hierarchy, it's not setting down a hierarchy in the formal constitutional sense that you get in many different states. Now I've had to do rather quickly an overview of the whole of the sources of international law. It may seem rather difficult at times, but it is something which it's important to understand if you're to have any hope of understanding international law as a whole. This is perhaps the starting point and the most fundamental area of international law. Once you've grasped it, as I know you will do, then you're in a position to go on and understand the whole of the rest of the subject. I wish